0: Summer, We've been doing Elijah and Elisha. We're going back to another E-word. We're going back to Ephesians. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Restarting, re-kicking off. There you go. Our Ephesians series. And this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4. And really what we're going to be looking at is how to change. We're we're going to find out a real theology of working change. In a sense, you could read this almost as Paul's self-help book. And this is important because we live in a culture, society that is really obsessed with change. We, we love dramatic lifestyle changes. We even love it when, when homes change. How many of you love to watch Fixer Upper, Extreme Home Makeover? There's something about seeing the old home completely redecorated and transformed into something new. Uh, we're amazed and marveled when people's bodies undergo dramatic physical changes. So people who lose a lot of weight, bulk up, put on some muscle, really, you know, start taking a lot of protein, hitting the weight room, we marvel at that. Uh, we marvel when people make big career changes. You ever seen somebody, maybe they've been a high-powered CEO, they're some sort of li- leading some sort of corporate life, and then they make a big career shift. They become teachers or educators, or the person who midlife, they decide to go to law school or med school, or the person who leads corporate America, and chases that passion to start the restaurant, go out on their own, become an entrepreneur. We're always amazed when people just experience personal life change. They might overcome an addict, you know, take on responsibility, you know, change their life, overcome a fear, something that's holding them back and hindering them. And usually what happens when we see somebody experience real change, we marvel, we're amazed, and we say something like this, Wow, they are a new person. She's a new she's a new woman. He's a new man. And then we start asking questions. We start wondering things like this: What's the secret? How'd they do it? How'd they embrace that change? What happened? What prompted them to experience this radical transformation? And so, if you go to a bookstore, Barnes and Noble, local bookstore, you'll see that the shelves are covered with what type of books? Self help books. They're everywhere. And what does that tell us about our society? We're a culture, once again, that's obsessed with change. But here's the thing. There's so many titles. There's so many different books. It tells me two things. We all want to change, don't we? I mean, there's something about our homes, our bodies, our lives, our schedules, our families that we would say, I want to change this. So we all want to change. But once again, there's so many titles. And this tells me that change is really hard. It's really difficult. And it's why we go from one book to the next. So this morning we're going to look at Paul's self-help book. We're going to look at his in a sense explanation on how we can change. And over the course of Ephesians 4, 5 and 6, Paul is going to outline six scenarios or examples and this will be the next six sermons of dramatic life change. He's going to talk about somebody who was a liar who became a truth teller. He's going to talk about somebody who was consumed with anger who who became patient. He's going to talk about somebody who was a thief, who all of a sudden became a hard worker, somebody who used to use their language to tear people down, now uses their language to build people up. And then finally, he's going to talk about somebody who was unkind becoming kind. And so the way that Ephesians is broken down, just by way of reminder, is like a lot of Paul's letters. Usually, Paul kicks off his letters, whether it's to the Ephesians or the Romans, with some doctrine. He gives you a theology at the beginning of his letters, and that's really what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about. It, it's really a theology of the gospel, how we can be made right with God, but also right with others. And then there's a turning point in Ephesians, really at Ephesians 4, where he starts to get practical. And so that's the section that we're starting. It's a practical session, section. Excuse me. But even within chapter 4, we see this pattern once again, where chapter 4 starts with a really theological, doctrinal section on the very holiness of God. And the section that we're going to move into next week, we're going to get to the practicals. How do we live out of this holiness? And how do we embrace pure behavior, lifestyles of holiness? So, we're going to look at verses 17 through 24 this morning, and we're going to see Paul's instruction, his advice on how we can change. Read with me. It says this, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's where we start. The first command that Paul gives us in verse 17 He says this, you must no longer walk as Gentiles. You must no longer walk as Gentiles. Point number one is this, is you've got to get off the path. You've got to get off the way. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, don't walk as a Gentile? Now, believe it or not, it's actually a pretty simple point. Paul is writing to a church that is located in Ephesus. Ephesus is in the Mediterranean. So this means that a majority of the people who show up to the church in Ephesus were not Jews, they were what? Gentiles. Very good. So Paul's making a pretty simple point, and it's not an ethnic point. It's not a cultural point. He's simply saying this, don't live like the crowd. He's saying there should be a contrast. The church in Ephesus, y'all should stick out a little bit. There should be something that is different and set apart from the rest of the city. Now let's get a little crowd participation. If you weren't stuck with me And the Apostle Paul was your guest preacher this morning And he was actually giving a modern updated version of verse 17 What would he say to King's Chapel Presbyterian? He would say what? No longer walk as Anybody want to guess? He might say Americans He might say Georgians And believe it or not He might even say Caroltonians You ever thought about that? And despite the amount of churches in our city, despite the steeple, steeple count, okay, we live in a nation and a state and a city that doesn't honor God. And Paul specifically in verse 19 mentions out two things, mentions two things, and I'm not going to build a case, you know, for the sin and evil that I see in our surrounding society, but Paul mentions two things. He mentions greed and sensuality. So just think about it. Think about your neighbors. Think about your family. Think about your classmates. Do they handle their money, and do they approach sex in a way that honors God? Probably not. We're addicted to consumerism and racking up credit card debt. We frequent pornographic websites. We degrade women. Okay? When we start to think about it, we live in a city that does not honor God. We live, a barely, we live in a city that, that lives for the world, And the point that Paul is making is this. Even in Georgia, okay, there is a big difference between living in the Bible Belt and actually living according to the Bible. There's a big difference. And you could be a part of a a quote-unquote Christian culture and still not follow Christ. And Paul is simply making the point that there are irreconcilable differences between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And therefore... If Jesus is your king, you're a subject to King Jesus, you should not fit in. You should be a counterculture. In verse 17, this is where it all begins. Paul says, not only do I say this, I testify this. When he uses the word testify, he's actually saying, I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm turning the volume up. You got to hear this, okay? He's being forceful. He's insisting. And he also uses the word walk. The word walk means a leisure stroll, like a promenade. It's casual. It's cool. You're chilling. I mean, think about the green belt. Not right now when it's 100 degrees, but a nice evening in the fall, just walking the green belt, okay? That's what Paul is describing right here. And, he, and he's actually painting a picture that he's almost like, he, he's at the top of the mountain, And he's watching the rest of the city just cruise on a nice leisurely stroll towards death and futility. I actually had this experience a couple years ago, okay? I'm gonna give you a couple family stories. This one happened a couple years ago in Canada, okay? My family decided to go on a hike in Canada. They don't go by like miles and inches, it's kilometers. And we were in the Canadian Rockies and the trails weren't really well marked, but I said, family, let's go on a hike And and I was actually looking at a topographic map with all the lines, and I was like, no Boy Scout, I'm no outdoorsman, but I was like looking at the map, not Google Maps, but just a topographic map, and I found a road, and then I found what looked like this glacier-fed pond. I'm like, I'm sure this is full of trout, it's going to be a beautiful scene, let's go fishing, let's take our family, and it's only like one inch from the road to the pond. How hard could it be? Okay? So we start hiking. And we're strolling, just like verse 17, it's casual, the weather is beautiful, there's no humidity, there's no bugs, and we've been walking for what, about an hour and a half, and we're enjoying ourselves. and I'm like, any minute, we'll be there. Just over this hill, we'll be there, until somebody was coming down the mountain, another fellow hiker, and I said, hey, how, how close are we to this trout pond? And they said, you're miles away. They probably said, you're kilometers away, eh? Okay, that's what Canadians do, they're very polite. <laughs> And they said, you shouldn't go any further because you're about to walk into grizzly bear country. In fact, we just, we just actually passed you know, some fresh scat, some fresh droppings, and there's a hungry mama bear just up. Okay, And so they raised their voice. They made a point. They said, don't go this way. You're cruising. You're chilling. You're enjoying the good weather and the beautiful scene. But this path, it leads to what? To death and futility. And do you see what Paul is doing? He's doing the exact same thing. He's saying, I've come from the mountaintop. I've led that life. Don't go any farther. Don't walk as the world walks. And there's a reason for that. And it's not because we're avoiding, you know, grizzly bears. Paul says you want to avoid two things. If you follow the way of the world, it leads to two things. Dark thoughts and a hard heart. Do you see this? Dark thoughts and a hard heart. It starts in the mind. See, our world, our culture does not know God personally. And if you don't know God personally, everything else is disordered. So think about this. This is Ephesus. This is the Mediterranean. This is a Greek culture. When you think about the Greeks, what do you think about? You think about philosophers. You think about a very enlightened group of individuals, long white beards, flowing togas, and they're known for what? Their philosophy. Plato and Aristotle. I mean, it was the best thing about their culture. And do you see God's interpretation? From God's perspective, he says, no, their minds are dark and they're ignorant. And it really boils down to one reason. He says they have rejected the knowledge of God. And look, brothers and sisters, our culture is no different. Our culture is no different. We have professors and politicians, and this is just a low-hanging fruit of the last couple of weeks of the cable news cycle, but we have the so-called academics, the elites, the intellects, who can't even define the difference between a man and a woman, a boy and a girl. And these individuals, they view themselves as brilliant because they have diplomas and degrees, and they have published books, and they have peer-reviewed articles, and they have corner offices, and they live in DC. But they can't define something so basic and so elementary. This is a true story. Something came on on the radio, on the news, you know, in light of one of these recent news stories, and our little girl, Ellie, she's six year old, six years old And she said, Daddy, they don't know what the difference between boys and girls I said, Ellie, apparently it's up for debate I said, what do you think the difference between a boy and a girl is? And Ellie looked at me, and this is just the simple mind of a six-year-old Well, she said she thought about it And she said, well, Daddy, boys are rough and girls are sweet <laughs> But wait, there's more She said, boys are handsome and girls are pretty she said, boys pee in the woods, <laughs> and girls pee in the potty. <laughs> hey, and only because the real pastors aren't here, I'll tell you the whole story. She said, boys, their bottoms have sticks in them, and girls don't. <laughs> so there we go, the mind of a six-year-old. But she is articulating things that even professors, politicians, the elite can't in our day and age. So we have dark thoughts, but we also have hard hearts, hard hearts, now, this word hard heart, it literally means to petrify or to harden, to turn to stone, to turn to marble. Something is becoming impenetrable. Okay, The same word is used right here. Um, we have calloused hearts. Think about what a callous is. Your soft skin becomes hard because you're picking up bricks and two-by-fours and swinging a hammer and pushing weight, but you're just colliding with something over and over again. And slowly but surely... Your skin and your heart becomes hard. Now, now this is a willful callousing. This is a willful hardening. This is actually the same language that Paul uses in Romans one. He he says that when your hearts become hard, it's actually a willful rejection. This is actually the same language uh, for losing your sense of smell or your sense of or, or your sensitivity. Has that ever happened to you? Two weeks ago, I was actually in Oregon. I was in Eugene, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon is a different part of the country, but it's actually a place where uh, it, it's legal to like, smoke marijuana, okay? So you smell that funk just about anywhere. So we got off our airplane, rented a car, we hopped in the car, and what do you think the first thing we smell? Right, man, this thing reeks of weed. It just it slaps you in the face. It's pungent. And so I remember the first time we got in the car, it hit you. The second time we got in the car, it still hit you. But you know what? By the end of the weekend, we couldn't even smell it, okay? It didn't even bother us. We'd become complacent, become comfortable with that smell. And the same thing happens with our hearts, slowly but surely. We lose sensitivity to the corruption and the evil of the surrounding world. So do you see what Paul was saying? This is the path of the world. This is where this trail is heading, it starts with a bar- dark mind. It leads to a hard heart. Over time, it deadens your soul, and it leads to rebellious life. So do you see what Paul is saying? you got to get off the path. you got to make a decisive break with this path. So what do we do now? We know we need to get off this path. Well, where do we head next? Well, we're actually going to switch metaphors. We're going to go from hiking okay, to academia, because Paul says next you got to learn something. Paul says, I'm going to teach you, or I'm going to learn you something. More specifically, you're going to learn someone. Paul says you got to learn Jesus. you got to learn Christ. We see this in verse 20. Really, the language that Paul is using here, he's saying you need to enroll in school. Not to get an MBA, not to get your GED, but you need to enroll in the school of Christ. Now, we're we're going to get a little technical. Are you guys hanging with me? Can we get academic? I'm going to try to channel my, you know, my inner Henley just to prove to you guys you know, that I can actually you know, read some commentaries, dig a little deeper in the text. But commentators freak out about verse 20. It's actually pretty wild. They, they absolutely lose it. They would say, this verse, verse 20, is without precedent. There's no other verse like it in Scripture. In fact, there's no other verse like it in antiquity. And here's why. Why? Whenever this word learn is used, whenever the verb learn is used, it's always accompanied by a system, a doctrine, a code of ethics. Never a person. Never a person. And so the point that Paul is making is this, is that religions can't change you. The five pillars, the eightfold path, no religion can change you. Paul is also saying that rules and morality They can't change you. They can't make you anew. There's only one thing, according to Paul, that can make you new, and that's a collision. It's an encounter. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And look, Jesus says the exact same thing, doesn't he? In John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life that you what? That you know me. You encounter me. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this is really interesting Because this actually has profound implications for what we're doing right here and right now. Because Paul looks at his church in Ephesus and he says, remember, remember how you came to know Jesus. Remember your encounter with Jesus Christ. And Paul deliberately does not use the word about. He does not say you learned about Jesus. He says, you met Jesus. You learned Jesus. Now where do the Ephesians live? Remember, they live in the Mediterranean. This is 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So guess who who never preached in their church? Okay, when in doubt, say, Jesus. You nailed it. You got it. Jesus never visited Ephesus. And yet, Paul has the audacity to say that you've heard Jesus. In fact, he says, you've been taught by Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying every time a jacked up pastor stands on this stage and faithfully preaches the word of God, guess who you're hearing from? You're hearing the words of Christ. And every time you open the word of God with your cup of coffee in the morning, you're hearing from who? You're hearing from Jesus. Jesus is not only the subject of our sermon, he's what? He's the teacher. So here's what is happening. What Paul is describing is this knowledge is moving from knowing about Jesus to actually knowing Jesus. And when that happens, your heart, goes, your heart goes from being hard to soft. The only thing that can do that, the only one who can do that, is an encounter with Christ. I'll give you a quick example in my life about how knowledge or information has moved from the head to the heart. It comes with the car seat, okay? The dreaded car seat, okay? It's always a pain to force your kids in the car seat. And so one night, I took my kids to a West Georgia basketball game, and I said, look, I don't, I don't even want to fight the fight. Okay? They're riding in the front seat with dad. And so we were driving home on a Thursday night at West Georgia. And sure enough, we're pulling onto Maple Street. And what do I see? Flashing blue lights because they have a mandatory roadblock. And I'm driving about 10 miles an hour. And I know I'm like, I'm like driving towards my doom, right? Because I can't turn left, can't turn right, can't just whip a U-E. It's like, and so I looked at Ellie and Jake. I said, we're about to have a nice conversation with the police officer. <laughs> okay. They come to the door, okay, they look in the window, they see me and my two kids just smiling right next to me, and they said, sir, do you have a car seat? I said, in fact, I have two, and they're right behind me. (laughs) Okay? Don't judge me. So it it wasn't until I had an encounter with the law, specifically law enforcement, that this information about seatbelts had moved from my head to my heart, and if I was honest with you, it was not an encounter with the cops that put the fear in me, it was an encounter with my wife. Because they would not let me drive my kids home. So I had to call Leah. She had to wake up. She had to drive down, pick them up, and scold me, okay, about the benefits of the car seat. So in the same way, right, the gospel's got to move from our head to our heart. And when this happens, it's a radical change. It's a transformation. From a human perspective, we call this conversion or repentance. From a divine perspective, we say this is regeneration, It's recreation. And here's how this happens. Only Jesus can accomplish this. And here's how he does it. In order to make us new, he had to what? Take on what was old. See, he takes on our corruption and he makes us pure. He was alienated from God so that we could be brought into a relationship with him. This is what an encounter with Jesus does. Who's ready for a classic campus outreach analogy? Anybody want one? Okay, kids. Okay, we talk about this a lot on campus. Let's go to our next slide. We, we talk about the Mack truck. We talk about the Mack truck. And if you know me, I like to cut it close with like deadlines. I like showing up at the very last second. Okay, But imagine just for a moment okay, that I was 10 minutes late to church, and I stumble on stage, and one of you had the audacity to say, Ben, why are you late? Why are you late to church? And I say, guys, you would not believe this. But I was coming across 27, you know, uh, I actually wasn't driving, I was walking, I was just you know, enjoying the beautiful Sunday morning. I wasn't paying attention because I was thinking about this sermon, what I was going to say. I didn't look to my left, I didn't look to my right, and coming down 27, there was a Mack truck moving at 60 miles an hour, and it ran me over, destroyed me, collided with me. I had an encounter with a Mack truck moving at 60 miles an hour, but I'm here now. It slowed me down, but I'm committed to the pulpit, I'm ready to preach. Okay, kids? What would you think if I stood up here and said, I had a crash or encounter with a Mack truck? Help me out, kids. You would think what? Let me hear from the goods. You'd think what? Okay, did y'all hear that? He said your guts would be hanging. Okay, that's (laughs) that's a great kid's explanation. But you would say what? If you have an encounter with a Mack truck moving at 60 miles an hour, your physical body will be transformed. It'll be rearranged. There'll be parts of your body flopping in 27. You'll be in an ambulance. You'll be banged up. You'll be bloody. You're not going to be standing on two feet. Do Do you see where we're going here? When we claim to be a follower of Jesus, we've said what? We've had a collision, an encounter with the Lord, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so if your life doesn't change, if it's not rearranged, if there's not a dramatic transformation, it's not because Jesus is weak or impotent. Maybe you haven't met the real thing Maybe you haven't had an encounter with Christ This is what Paul tells the church in Corinth He says, look, if you're in Christ You're a new creation And the old has passed away And the new has come Okay, So we've got to get off the path Then we've got to learn some Jesus We have to have an encounter with Christ And third, we've got to learn some grammar We've got to learn some grammar Okay, let's go to the next slide and this is where we really geek out, okay? So my professors, my academics, my theology experts, this is for you. Because Paul gives us a couple commands. He says, you got to put this off, the old man, and you got to put this on, the new man. This is in verse 22 and 24. Now, when Paul says put off and put on, he's using a very particular verb tense. This is called the aorist, okay? In our day and age, we call it the past Perfect. Let me explain. This is a verb tense that's describing something that has already happened. It's in the past. It was a one-time event. It was single. It is finished. So here's how we would use this verb tense. We would say, I got my driver's license when I was 16. I graduated from college. I turned 40. I bought my first home. Do you see what I'm saying? These are definitive, decisive Moments that we have already accomplished and already done. And this is the verb tense Paul uses to describe putting off, but also putting on. Do you see what he's saying? There's been a decisive break. It's already happened. You are no longer deformed, corrupt, and fleshly. You've been made new. You are fresh, you are vigorous, and you are like Jesus Christ. But then he says you have to be renewed, and he uses a different verb tense. And this verb tense is actually the opposite of past perfect. It's called present progressive. Hang with me. I know we're geeking out a little bit. But Paul says, be renewed. And when he uses present progressive, he's describing something that you repeat. You do over and over again. This is a habit. It's a lifestyle. It's something you do all the time. This should apply to like just your daily habits. Uh, maybe how you take care of your body, Lord willing, you put deodorant on, on like a daily basis. You brush your teeth. It's present progressive. You do it each and every day. This is probably how you take care of your home and your your yard. You wash your sheets. You cut your grass. You do it day in, day out, week in, week out. You lose track. You've done it so many times. But we also see this. He doesn't say renew yourself. He doesn't use the active voice. He uses the passive voice. He says be renewed. And passive, the passive here is very important. Now imagine just for a moment, and this will be my one sports analogy for the sermon, but imagine just for a moment if a coach was about to give a pregame speech and he decided I'm only using the passive, passive verbs. And so he was trying you know, to motivate, to inspire, to get his guys to run through a wall, and he said, today, guys, we're going to be destroyed. Today, we're going to be hit. Today, we're going to be fought. Today, we are going to be dominated. Okay, is that inspiring? Why not? Because he used the passive. No, he would use the active. We got to hit somebody. We don't want to be hit. Well, do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying you can't renew yourself. This is something that God does to you. He says we put on the new self. We don't create the new self. We don't make the new self. We do repent daily. We join, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but only God can make me new. So what is Paul saying right here? Is he almost advocating that we should put on like a mask? Is this some weird version of spiritual hypocrisy where we cover up and disguise the real you just with a religious veil? I think Paul is saying something different. Because when we think about our society, very often when we change roles, we change clothes. You ever thought about that? Very often... When you change roles, identities, or careers, you often change your clothes. So let's think about this. Mamas, it's almost time for back-to-school shopping. So you going to drag your kid to Target, to TJ Maxx, and you're going to say what? Son, you're going into elementary school. we got to put up all the Paw Patrol shirts. we get, we got to get you a real-life polo. I'm going to buy you a collared shirt. I remember when I was leaving high school and going to college, guess what my dad bought me? a blue blazer and a tie, because you're a college student. You're an academic now. But we do this in different ways. I mean, think about when a civilian joins the military, he receives what? A new uniform. When, when, when somebody who's in prison and a criminal is set free, he gets what? A new ro- wardrobe. When Freddie Freeman is traded to the Dodgers, he receives what? A new uniform, because he's part of a, a new team, a new program. Last night we were at a fancy wedding and they required us to wear a black tie tuxedo because just for a night we pretended that we were fancy and socialites. But the point is this is that clothes are like a uniform, and clothes are a visible and public identity. So think about it this way probably after church, you might go get some lunch. You might drive over to Popeye's to get some fresh fried chicken. You're going to see somebody smiling with an orange polo. And you're going to think, this man, this young man works for Popeye's. He's in charge of the fried chicken. So in the same way, if we're clothed or uniformed in Christ Jesus, people at our work and our city should look at, it, look at us and say, what? This man, this woman, he works for Jesus Christ. If you were to break, over, break down on the side of the road... and a a police officer in uniform came to help you out, what what would his uniform signify? It would say that his purpose, his role, is to serve and to protect. He's here to help you. So in the same way, when you come in contact with people and they see your Christ-like character or clothing, they should say, this, this person's purpose is to love God and to make disciples. You might love watching sports in the Olympics. You see, you know, U.S. Olympians and athletes compete in red, white, and blue, and it reminds you what? This person competes, they play, they train for the kingdom of the United States of America. And So in the same way, our character, or our uniform should suggest that we play, that we live for the kingdom of God. This is what it means to put on Christ. Do you see this? So here's our last point. Here's our last point, and this is a fun one. Point number four, we gotta start to waltz or start waltzing. Okay, we got any ballroom dancers in the crowd. Okay, that's a, that's a lost art. I'm not raising my hand either. Okay, but did you know this? Does anybody know the ball that in ballroom dancing, okay, the waltz in particular, how many steps is the waltz? Anybody know? Okay, it's a three-step. It's a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I've just described everything I know about the waltz. Okay? <laughs> But I don't know if you know, it picked up on this, but in the previous point, we actually described a three-step. There's a three-step pattern. Paul says you got to put off, you got to put on, and you got to renew. Put off, put on, and renew. And this is really the secret sauce of how we change. And so in the weeks to come, actually for the next six sermons, we're going to be looking at this three-step pattern. And this is what verses 25 through 31 is all about, and Paul gives us six examples. And they all follow the the same pattern. Paul will give a negative, then a positive, and a reason why. In other words, Paul will say this, don't do this, now I want you to do this, and here's why. It's a three-step. Let me give you one example. This is the first example that we'll see next week. It's in verse 25. Do you see it? Paul says, don't do this, put away falsehood. But he says, do this, speak the truth. And then he gives us a reason. He says, for we are members of one another. It's this three-step. We call this the gospel waltz. And here's why this is so important. When you think about the areas in your life, the parts of your character that you want to change, do you usually approach it with a three-step? No, we as Americans typically have what? What type of dance? A one-step. And we just say, I just got to stop it. I just got to change so you might have, you know, you might cuss like a sailor, maybe not in this room, okay? But you might say, uh, my, my language is unholy, and so I'm just going to stop cussing. I'm going to get the swear jar, and I'm going to avoid these four-letter words. Some of you might say, I spend way too much time on social media. So what do we do? We just stop it. It's the one step. So I announce that I'm going on a social media fast, and then I delete my account. I just got to quit it. Some of you would say that I'm a little too anxious, I worry too much, and so what's our solution oftentimes? Well, just stop it. Let go, let God. Quit worrying. Trust God. Do you see this? It's the one step. It's the one step. And how is that working out for us? Not very well. So this is what we're going to be talking about for the next six weeks. Now, there's a reason why we're using uh, maybe a dancing analogy, okay? Okay? It's not because I'm a great dancer, but here's the thing, whatever your favorite dance move is, okay, you could be like a young guy, I'm looking at y'all, you know, maybe you like to, like to gritty, come on guys, look at me, yeah, gritty when you score that touchdown, Noah, you looking, there we go, y'all don't even know what that is, okay? <laughs> you, you, you might, you know, you're like the only thing that gets me on the dance floor is like the Cupid Shuffle or the Macarena where they tell you exactly what to do. You might be a ballroom dancer, but here's the thing whatever dance moves you enjoy the most, anytime you're learning a new dance move, guess what? And look, we got a lot of white people in the room, okay? It's really awkward at first. It's a little clumsy. You're stepping on each other's feet. You're off rhythm. You're just figuring it out. And it's the same thing with this three-step. When it comes to changing, when it comes to real repentance, it just takes time. There's a learning curve. But the second thing is this. Why do we dance? Does anybody ever dance out of obligation? I'm at the wedding and it's the right thing to do. It's time to go on the dance floor, honey. I'm obligated. No, no, nobody is commanded to dance. Nobody is forced to dance. We dance because what? It's a celebration. Nobody dances because they have to. They dance because they want to. Because it brings us closer to our spouse. Because we're celebrating a wedding. We're celebrating a party. There's delight. There's satisfaction. And so as we learn the gospel waltz each and every week, it's going to bring us closer to God, and it's going to lead to greater joy and satisfaction. There's our three-step right there. So, here's where we'll wrap it up. Did you guys notice this? That the order that Paul gives us is that being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. Very often we get it twisted. See, we think there's things we need to do, and then we can be a follower of Jesus. So, First, I've got to do. I've got to clean my language up. I've got to control my iPhone. I've got to quit worrying, and then I can be a follower of Jesus. But that's not the order that Paul gives us. Paul reminds us that Jesus is telling us that I've put off the old man. I've put on the new man, so go be renewed. Join me. This is an invitation. Let me give you one final example of this, and we'll wrap it up. In 2013, you might have seen this story. There was actually um, a a great news story about how veterans were receiving makeovers up in Michigan. And there was actually two believers. If we could show the next picture, this will demonstrate it. There's actually two believers. One was a barber and the other was a tailor. And they actually made it their ambition. I think it's in Grand Rapids where they were going to go to different veterans who had fallen on hard times and offer them free makeovers. And so they met a guy named Jim. You can see Jim right here on the left and the right. And when they first met Jim, Jim was homeless. Uh, he was an alcoholic, he was very poor, and he was addicted to a variety of substances. And then he had an encounter with a barber and a tailor. And there was a physical transformation. And Jim, even though he was a very capable um, veteran, he couldn't clean, it, clean himself up. He, he couldn't sew a new suit. He couldn't cut his hair. He couldn't even clone, you know comb his greasy matted hair it took a new barber it took a new tailor and so he sat they actually blindfolded him you can actually watch this on youtube and over time they were able to put off the old the tattered clothes the dirt under his fingernails and they were able to put on a tailored suit you know a clean haircut and so it's really amazing you can actually see when they when he sees himself in the mirror and he just sits in silence for almost a minute And he was shocked. It's almost like visibly it's just sinking in that this is the new me. This is who I really am. You know what he does next? He throws his hands in the air and he just starts celebrating. Now there might be some cynics in the room who just say, well, Ben, that that was just a physical makeover. That didn't change anything. And he might look good, but he's still corrupted. Believe it or not, today Jim owns a home, attends AA, and is working a job. And so the point is this. Yes, they just change the externals. But when Jesus goes to work, when His Spirit goes to work, He changes from the inside out. And what if each and every day we had an encounter with Christ Jesus? And each and every day we opened God's Word and we heard from Christ and we put off the old and we put on the new and we were renewed. What would happen? What would happen in our homes, our sports teams, our sororities, or departments or gyms or neighborhoods you know what i think would happen your neighbors your coworkers your cousins they would probably take a minute but eventually they would throw their hands up and they would worship jesus let me pray for us Dear Lord, we, we, we all recognize there are areas in our life that we want to change. And it goes way deeper than adding on to our home or losing a few pounds. When we get gut level honest, there, there are deep and significant problems with our character. We all want to change. So Lord, I thank you that you not only give us the path, you also give us the power to change and to become new. So, Lord, today, I pray that some of us would recognize that we're walking down the wrong path, that we fit into the world around us, and we would make a decisive step to get off that path, and we would encounter you. Christ, I pray that your power would be on full display, that we encounter you in a way um, that, that you would rearrange our lives in a way greater than a Mack truck. And I pray that the men and women of King's Chapel, each and every day, we would waltz. We would embrace the gospel, put off the old, put on the new, and be renewed. We praise your name. Amen.